Good morning, everybody. Before we get started, I want to do a quick survey. Um, raise your hand if you've been living in Oregon for five or more years. Awesome, cool. How about 10 or more years? And 20? Okay, we're getting a little less. How about 30? Awesome, awesome. That's really cool. You can put your hands down. Um, second question is how many folks have had a significant move in your life? So like say you've moved to a new place from um, more than 100 miles. So more than two moves in your life, big moves. All right, how about more than five? Okay, cool, very cool, thanks. Myself, I've had four moves. Um, I was born in West Virginia, and after just a couple of months, my family moved down to rural Georgia. So I grew up in the, the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. Um, it was a really beautiful place. And I, I grew up there, that was my childhood, my teen years. And I think it was around 20 years old when we moved out to Southern California. And then for the last nine years, my family's been up here in Oregon. And there's just something really cool about having deep roots in a place. Like I think it's really awesome when folks have, are still living in the place they grew up. Um, I'm kind of envious of the fact that like you can just randomly bump into somebody that maybe you went to school with back in grade school or just something quite that. There's just something interesting about having those deep of roots. And whenever we move to a new place or whenever we just are living in a place we grew up, we use this expression of we're putting roots in that place. But in a lot of ways, the places where we're living, they're putting their roots into us. They're, they're changing the way that we see the world, the things we live for. They're influencing us and shaping us. And the, probably the hardest move for me was when we went from Georgia to Southern California. And, and obviously, I mean, that was the place I had grown up. I had deep roots in Georgia. And it was just really, really difficult to then uproot and be in Southern California. Southern California is very, very different than Georgia. <laughs> and um, for the first couple of months, I was kind of grumpy. And I was in that mode of like, everything is terrible and I'm gonna complain about everything. But unfortunately, like Southern California has a lot of things you can complain about too. So I just was going on and on. And through a series of events, I came to this point where I had an opportunity actually to move back. And I started spending some time in prayer and thought, because it was kind of unexpected, and thinking like, you know, God, where do you really want me to be at? And it became pretty clear, actually, I need to stay in Southern California. That's where God wants me to be. And so I was able to begin to go through this process of letting go of my old home from Georgia and actually putting down roots in Southern California. So we're in Hebrews 11, and we're talking, we've been talking about a family that went through uh, a similar big move, much, much bigger, much harder. But last week, Scott was talking about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and how they left this land that they had grown up in and everything they knew, and they had this radical act of obedience in pursuing God's calling and moving to an unknown destination. And this morning, our passage is going to be reflecting on this and reflecting on this theme of faith. And, and what is it or why is it that Abraham's faith and his family, it led them to take such a radical step? So if you would, would you turn with me to Hebrews 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. And then it's also going to be up here too. So Hebrews 11, verse 13. And if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me as we read the Lord's word? These all died in faith without receiving the things promised. 
But they saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For those who speak in such a way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In fact, if they had been thinking of the land that they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Thank you. So before we dive into this passage, I want to make two quick observations. The first is, in Hebrews 11, as it's talking about this theme of faith and giving these examples of faith, each section begins with this formula of by faith. And it has this nice repetition, this nice pattern of by faith Abraham, by faith Noah. But our section does not start that way. There's something odd happening here. And commentators have different opinions of what's happening, but I think that the, the option that makes the most sense, at least to me, is that the author is intentionally drawing attention to this section by not including by faith. He's saying this is something important. In fact, I think this is getting at the main point of Hebrews 11, that this list of, of examples of faith isn't just to say, here's a great list of people that, that showed faith, but it's getting to the point of this passage. So that's the first observation. The second one is, I think because of that, the subject is a little bit ambiguous. The pronouns here are they, and, and it's, it's a little bit unclear as who it's referring to. And I think that the details of this passage best fit Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. But this passage is really trying to get at a principle of faith that applies to all the people in Hebrews 11, and certainly to us as well. So to keep things simple, at least for me in my head, I'm going to be referring this to Abraham, but just understand that this is talking about a bigger scope, and it might feel weird when I say, like, Abraham, and then it says they up there, but that's, that's how I'm trying to make it all make sense. So to our question then, why did Abraham's faith lead him to take this step of radical obedience? Well, the first answer from this passage is, is faith is living for a new unseen home. And we're going to jump back um, to last week's section in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So Abraham is pursuing this new home, and the author of Hebrews is saying he's pursuing a city, he's pursuing a country, he's pursuing this destination that God has for him. And I really appreciated how Scott started to unpack this last week, that this, this destination he was going for, while it, immediately it was focusing on the land of Canaan, really what he was pursuing was this ideal that was going to become the city of Jerusalem. This place where God's temple would be, where God would dwell with his people, where there would be this intersection of heaven and earth. But we know from reading the Bible that didn't work out. Israel didn't fulfill their purpose. They weren't a blessing to the nations. And Jerusalem was not this source of life for the world. It ended up being a source of pain and death. And so in the Old Testament prophets, as they're reflecting on Israel's failure, and even in the New Testament, there's this sense of saying that just because Israel failed doesn't mean that God's promise failed. In fact, it means that God's promise was actually about something bigger than just Israel as a nation. And we know that that promise actually centers on Jesus, that he was the one who came and he was the blessing to the world. He brought God's salvation and life. He succeeded where Israel didn't. And he's the source of life, salvation. He's bringing God's kingdom. 
that God's promise focuses on Jesus as king and bringing his promised kingdom. And so that he is a true intersection of heaven and earth. And so that's where the promise is pointing towards, is towards Jesus and his kingdom. And the reality is, is his kingdom still isn't fully here. It's beginning, but it's not fully here. And so I think that's why the book of Revelation ends with this beautiful scene of um, a marriage ceremony. It's, a, it's a using marriage language. And it's talking about this new heavens and this new earth, where you have this new earth that's been created, this new Garden of Eden, for all intents and purposes. And then you have this picture of this heavenly Jerusalem descending and being planted in that new earth. And so that the hope of this city of Jerusalem that, that Abraham might, might have started in, it actually was pointing towards this hope of this new Jerusalem, this new heavens and this new earth, this new creation, this new Garden of Eden, where we can dwell with the Lord forever, where we have peace, where we have no suffering and no sin, and where humanity can fulfill God's purpose for us. We can be his true, unblemished image bearers, and that we can um, be rulers and uh, image, uh, stewards over his creation. So that's a whole lot about this promise. I'm kind of stumbling through it a little bit because there's so many details. But N.T. Wright, I think he did a really good job summarizing this in Surprised by Hope. He said, The living God will dwell with and among his people, filling the city with his life and love, and pouring out grace and healing in the river of life that flows from the city out to the nations. So far from sitting on clouds playing harps, as people often imagine, the redeemed people of God in this new world will be agents of his love, going out in new ways to accomplish new creative tasks to celebrate and extend the glory of his love. So this is a really cool hope. This is a really cool promise of God. And Abraham, he only knew about the very beginning. And even what he knew was unseen to him, right? He never actually saw the land of Israel or the, the nation of Israel or the city of Jerusalem. And we see so much more today because we can see Christ. We see Jesus. But even then, though we see so much more of this promise, we still, a lot of this promise is unseen to us. And I think the point of this passage is, is that Abraham, even though so much of this promise was unseen to him, he still committed to it. He was still pursuing it. It was his purpose. It was his hope and his identity. And he was embracing this promise as his new home. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this new home. He says, I must keep alive in myself this desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never know, I said, sorry, I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. So the question, how did, why did Abraham's faith lead to this radical act of obedience? It's because this, his faith was focused on this promise of God. He was seeking this new home, this new country. But also because faith is letting go of our old home. To verse 13, it says, These all died in faith without receiving the things promised, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. So Abraham's obedience was from this deep commitment to God's promise. He was looking towards this new home. And that meant that he was considering himself as a foreigner on earth, that everything around him was, he was a foreigner to, he was a stranger to. And the language here is kind of interesting, and we won't get into the, the Greek and all that, even though it's fun. But I think the language is pointing towards Abraham admitting or confessing that he was a stranger on earth is in many ways parallel towards our confession of Jesus as our Lord. 
that he was so committed to God's promises, he was so committed to God's direction that this was an act of faith, very similar to when we say we confess Jesus our Lord. Both are saying that we are God's people. Both are submitting to his sovereignty, his lordship. And both are saying that we're giving up this old home because we're pursuing this new Jerusalem, this new home, this new promise. Paul says something very similar in Philippians 3. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So because Abraham was giving up his old home, that also meant there was no going back. In verse 15 it says, If they had been thinking of the land from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. And this is a, an interesting verse, and it's, it's caught my attention as I've been, been reflecting and meditating on this passage, because it's just an interesting idea. If he had been thinking of his old home, then he might have actually gone back. And I think part of the reason why that's a little odd to me, at least, is that it's very easy to underestimate um, how significant of a change it was Abraham took. This last weekend, my wife and I celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary, and it's been a busy, it's been a busy season. And so we did not plan really at all for it. So we, um, last minute, we got a, a, got a hotel up in Washington and we just kind of winged it for the weekend. And it worked out really well. We had a lot of fun. We didn't run into any major problems. And it really hit me as we were coming back that we didn't have to really worry at all about where are we gonna get food. We had just a wide array of restaurants. We didn't have to worry about our safety. We didn't have to worry about really any of the details at all. We just kind of picked a direction and went in it and it worked out. And that's not at all how it worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, your family, your village, that was your source of pretty much everything. That's where you were safe. That's where you had protection from nature and from other groups. That's where you had food and water. All of your life was really about your village. And so when Abraham left that, he was accepting a life that was going to be very difficult, a life that was daily full of these challenges where it's like, okay, so how are we going to, what are we going to do about food today? And the easy answer is, well, we could just go back home. And it's a hard thing to figure out, but there's always this easy option of going back home. And I think this verse is trying to show us that for Abraham, he wasn't even considering his prior home an option. He wasn't even, it wasn't even in his mind. He didn't have a backup plan. He was so committed to God's promise. He was 100% on God's promises, all into God's promise. And I think that um, this idea of, of pursuing God's promise, of considering ourselves a foreigner on here, this is very common in the New Testament. It's something that, um, it's a really core idea to what it means to follow Jesus. It means that he is our Lord and that we are citizens of his kingdom first, that everything else is second to that. You know, this weekend we're celebrating Independence Day. We're celebrating, celebrating the nation of America and just the, the blessings and freedoms we have in this nation. That's an awesome thing. But even the nation of America is still second to Jesus. Even our citizenship here is second to our citizenship in heaven. Because we are considering, if we're following Jesus, then everything here is not our home. We're, we're living as strangers. And the ancient Jewish theologians and early Christians, when they were reflecting on this idea of living as strangers, it's interesting that very often their application of that was right away talking about, well, what do we do about our earthly desires? How do we get rid of sin in our life? Like for them, the idea of living as strangers right away went to this question of, okay, what about sin in our life? 1 Peter 2.11 is a great example of this. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away 
from the fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. And so this connection between living as strangers in this world and dealing with the sin in our hearts, it's actually exactly where Hebrews is going to. After all these examples in Hebrews 11 of faith, very beginning of chapter 12 says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these examples of faith, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us. So I think this gives us an interesting way to connect this idea of living for our new home and letting go of our current home. Because we know the Spirit, he works in our hearts. He works in our hearts to convict us of sin. He works in our hearts to redeem areas that we're struggling with. And I think an interesting way of looking at it is to say that these areas in ourself that are not as God would like, those are actually areas where our old home has taken root in us. And that makes sense, right? Like this is where we grew up. This is where we've lived our whole life. And so it makes sense that this earth and it's this world that has taken up residence in our hearts and souls. And that the Holy Spirit then, his job is to dig out these roots of the old, old world in us because we're trying to pursue our new home. And these then could look like a lot of different things, right? They could see simply just the fact that we struggle with trusting the Lord with the things we care about, like our finances or our family. This could be materialism, greed, pride, lust, uh, searching, uh, seeking after prestige and power. It can even just be the content we consume, the things we're filling ourselves with. These are ways that our old home is keeping root in us. Um, I love the Voyage of the Don Treader from the Chronicles of Narnia. The movie I didn't like as much, but the book is, I've loved it since I was a kid. And if you've read the story, um, there's a character, Eustace, in it. And Eustace is, from the very beginning, he's rude, he's selfish, he's just a miserable person to be around. And through a sequence of events, he gets turned into a dragon. And in case you didn't know, Chronicles of Narnia, it's fantasy, so he gets turned into a dragon. Um, <laughs> And at first, it's cool, right? Like, he can fly, he's strong, like, it's really cool being a dragon. But he quickly realizes that the few connections he had with other people are not going to last. That because he's a dragon, he's going to become even more lonely. And so he's miserable, and he's feeling lost. And one evening, he's walking through the woods, and he meets Aslan the lion. And for all intents and purposes, Aslan is really the Christ figure of the story. He's a powerful lion, he's um, a dangerous lion, and Eustace is scared. I mean, he's a dragon, but he's still scared of this lion. And Aslan offers to restore him and to heal him and to make him a human again. And while Eustace is kind of scared of this lion, he says, okay, that's great, let's do that. And so Aslan makes an odd request. He says, well, I need you to undress. And Eustace, he's pretty sharp, and he figures out, okay, well, I'm a dragon. Dragons are reptiles. Reptiles shed skin. He just means I need to shed some skin. He's like, sweet, I can do that. And so with his claws, he starts scratching his dragon skin, and he's able to shed a layer of skin. And he's all proud of that. He's like, look, I did it. I got that off. So we're done, right? And nope, I'm still a dragon. So he's getting discouraged again. And he, so he tries again, and then he tries again. And he's getting really discouraged now because he's trying so hard to do what Aslan said and make himself no longer be a dragon, but he can't do it. And then Aslan offers to do it himself. And Eustace, he's scared. I mean, this is a lion, he's powerful, he's got sharp claws, and he's really worried, this is, this is probably going to hurt. Like, I don't know if I can trust him to do this and not make it very painful. But he has nothing else, no other options. He's out of, of choices here, so he, he lays down 
and he lets the lion remove his dragon skin. And he was right. It hurts. This lion is, is digging deep. And he's in pain and he's, he's, he's miserable. But then he has this moment of joy where he realizes, but wait, this is working. Like Aslan is actually removing this dragon skin from me. And at the end of, the story, at the end of this encounter, Aslan fully restores him and he's back to being a human, which is great. But even more important, he's also had a heart change. He's also a different person. And he's, he's, some of this loneliness and this, this anger he has has been healed. And I like this story because I think it's such a perfect analogy for how the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. That he reveals areas to us where there's a problem, where we have these roots of our old home in us. And our response is often the same as Eustace, right? Like, I can fix that, not a problem. But what he needs us to do is surrender to his work. And his work is not going to be easy, and it might not even be very um, pleasant either. But that's the work we need to have happen to remove these roots from our hearts, from our souls, and so that we can be healed and be restored and be fully seeking our new home with God's kingdom. And when he does this, when he begins to restore parts of ourselves so those roots are removed, we don't look back. Like Abraham, we stay focused on God's kingdom, God's promises on Jesus, and we don't look back at that old home. We don't let those roots grow back. So Abraham's radical obedience, first that was because he was pursuing this new unseen home, this promise of God. And the second is because he, was, he had given up on his old home. He had treated his old home as if he was a stranger and a foreigner on earth. And the final point here about faith from this passage, about why Abraham did this, is that his faith wasn't based on his circumstances. This passage begins, these all died in faith without receiving the thing promised. And the point is, all these characters in chapter 11, they died. Well, I guess except for Enoch. He probably didn't die. But everyone else, they died. And the fact that they died does not mean that God's promises weren't true. And more importantly, these all died still believing in God's promises. So they knew these unseen promises, I may not actually see these be fulfilled in my life, but I'm still going to be pursuing that. I'm still going to be seeking God. I'm still going to be living for this new home. And I think then by extension we can say, that if faith is focused on Jesus and our new home, then our present circumstances are kind of, um, they're, they're not the focus, they're not the, the question. So that faith means we don't lose hope in Jesus and in God's promises, even if our present situations are bad or not improving. And I suspect, I know for me, but I suspect for many of us, this is probably the hardest part about faith is it's very easy to trust God. It's very easy to be passionate about where God's going if we believe that means our present circumstances will improve. That means something that's, that's not good is going to get better or something we want, we will receive. It's very easy to be excited about that and have faith and trust God and take steps of obedience because we can see the thing that we want and we think that God's going to get us there. But the point here is that this, the faith that's being talked about here is not about God improving our situation. It's not about us having better outcomes. And I think this is really getting at the main point of chapter 11 and really the book of Hebrews. And if you can remember when Scott went over this a couple weeks ago, the, the book of Hebrews is being written to an audience. That they're suffering. They have difficult circumstances. They're facing a lot of challenges. And those challenges are making them question God's faithfulness, and they're making them question whether or not Jesus is really worth following. And the whole point of Hebrews is to say, 
No, look at how great Jesus is. There's no alternative that's going to be anywhere near as great as him. So hold tight to him. And if you have a chance, I would strongly recommend be reading through the book of Hebrews because it's such a beautiful, rich theology about Jesus. The book goes back, has these, these um, repeated sections. It'll say, here's something great about Jesus. He's, look how he's better than angels, or look how he's better than Moses, or the temple, or all these amazing things about Jesus. And then it'll have another section saying, so don't let go of him. Don't lose faith. Have full assurance. Draw near. And it goes back and forth with that pattern. And I think that's why chapter 11, when it starts, we, it starts with this saying about faith, that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. I don't think the author of Hebrews just made that and just said, okay, let's talk about faith now, and here's a great definition for faith, and let's go with that. He's building on this idea that he's been working on for the prior 10 chapters. And the point he's trying to make is faith is confidence of God's promises, the faith, when we're, when we, true faith is when our confidence and our hope is in Jesus and his faithfulness and the truth of his promises. And our assurance is not that we see it. Our assurance is something we don't see because we don't see God's kingdom today. And probably most of us will not see it in our life in its fullness. But we still, that's what faith is. Faith is believing in his promise that's unseen. So I think the the, the, the main point of this then is, is that if our object of faith is for something to get better today, then that's not the faith that we have in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is in him as our faithful one, and especially in this home that he has for us, this home that he's working and preparing for us, this new kingdom, this new Jerusalem. That is supposed to be our hope. And what that means is, is the suffering we have today, I mean, God certainly may have, um, he, he certainly likes to bless us, he certainly wants to help um, um, encourage us, but that's not the primary goal of us being having happiness or having um, things easy today. The goal is that, that new home, that new kingdom. That's our destination. And Paul makes a similar point in 2 Corinthians. In 4.16 he says, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us at, at glory, eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And this is actually where Hebrews is going as well, because chapter 12 will be talking about these examples about our trials and troubles. Those are actually opportunities for God to be working in our life. And those can be opportunities for the Holy Spirit to be working in our heart. I. Howard Marshall, a theologian, he summarizes, I think, really well. He said, Such faith involves commitment that life is lived, preferring the future reward to the present. It must also involve trust in God that he will fulfill his promises. And it certainly involves perseverance in the face of opposition and every temptation to fall back into a more comfortable, less risky way of living. It requires the believer to recognize the unpleasant experiences may still be within the purposes of God, inasmuch as they constitute part of the training or discipline that he uses for our own good. As the band comes up, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on our definition of faith that we've been using throughout this series. We've been defining faith as life-altering trust, radical obedience, 
and enduring confidence in the power, wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness of God. I think this is an awesome definition, and I think it fits Hebrews 11 very well. And what I like about it is it tells us what faith looks like. Faith is trust, obedience, confidence. And it tells us what the object of our faith is. It's God's faithfulness, power, wisdom, and goodness. And I like how Scott's been encouraging us as we read each section to add that definition in there to see how different aspects of each story reflect that meaning of faith. And I think in this section of Hebrews, the author is trying to show us an additional dimension of faith, this why of faith. Why does faith do these things? Why does faith look these ways? It's because faith is letting go of this earthly home and it's living fully for God's promised new home, for this new Jerusalem. So our life should not be, sorry, our life should be about pursuing this new home and God's promised city, this Garden of Eden, this future hope of where we can be truly human and where we can live eternally in God's presence. And I suggest we should all remind ourselves of this daily. We should remind ourselves, this is my home. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm living for. This is my hope. And our faith should be a deep commitment to this home, a commitment that's so strong that we're willing to let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and reveal these roots of our old home and, and, and we will surrender those to him and let him heal and restore those areas of our life. And our faith should be in the faithfulness of the promises of Jesus. That our hope is in our, the faithful one and not our present circumstances. Um, the hymn writer Henry Francis Light wrote, It is not for me to be seeking my bliss and building a, my house in a region like this. I look for a city which hands have not piled, and I pant for a country by sin undefiled. Because faith is letting go of this earthly home and living for our new home. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we just thank you for today. And Lord, we just thank you that you have made such amazing promises for us and that you are building us this new home. And Lord, I just pray that you would work in each of our hearts and just help us to remember that that is what we are living for, and that is our hope, and that is our purpose. Lord, I just pray that you would just show us those areas where our old home has taken root. And I just pray you would continue to work in each of our hearts so that we can be fully committed to you, to your faithfulness, and to your kingdom. Amen.